Good morning, all you sophisticated imbibers out there. Yeah, imbibers today. Yeah, yeah. yeah was it, it's going to be another one of our spirited programs. Yeah, we've, we've, been, <laughs> we've been doing quite a lot of imbibing recently. Yeah, I guess so. I guess, I guess, I guess it keeps you from getting bored. Yeah, I guess. Anyhow, listeners, you're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And we're going to start out with a, a real surprise. It's the first time we, we got to know this vineyard, um, this producer. And also we got to meet somebody who's uh, actually family owns a farm that we've been familiar with ever since we moved to Pittsburgh. And we're going to be talking. Yeah, you've actually been to that farm, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah when the kids were little, we used to yeah, go out. Our, our son was in school, I guess, with with. With somebody's children. Oh, was that it? Well, I think it must have been. I don't, I don't know. know. But anyhow, we're going to be talking to Pete Sorgel, and um, I was so happy. His name jumped out at me on the uh, something I was reading because of his family's farm, and it's such a wonderful farm. And he turns out to be uh, the winemaker at a new-to-us estate. It's not new, but just is. Linmar Estate, and we've been enjoying their wines. Which is in the and, and boy, does Pete know what he's talking about? I'm yeah, really impressed. He sure does. You, you're going you're to learn a lot. I, I already did, and Anne already did. Yeah, and you, you, and you're going to as stuff. well, and you and you you're going to want to put the product on the list of things that you enjoy. Well, Pete Sorgel. <laughs> um, I, I think I was attracted to uh, your, your website because of your name. I know your family's farm very, very well and love it. Uh, how did you get from um, outside of Pittsburgh uh, to Napa? Yeah, so I uh, you know, grew up on the family farm in Wexford and uh, have always had an ag background. I went to college at Virginia Tech with a horticulture degree and kind of through college uh, kind of got the wine bug through my aunt, uh, my mom's sister, who uh, had been drinking wine uh, for, for many years and uh, knew the owners of Landmark Vineyards in Sonoma oh, Valley. Sure. Sure. We, we we know we know we know Mary from Landmark very well. Oh yeah, so uh, you know when we, all, she, we know the, we know the secret of how she can afford to make wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it uh, it was it was a great place to land, and so I came out with my aunt, and we met uh, Mike and Mary Calhoun, and they offered me uh, an internship for the 2006 harvest, and. Uh, that then was a great experience, which led uh, to me kind of really getting the wine bug. So then I, I bounced around. I went to New Zealand for a harvest in the spring of oh, 2007. Yeah, I worked at a Framingham in Marlborough, so did a lot of Sauvignon Blanc um, and kind of really uh, started really getting my feet wet in, in the wine world. And so that's kind of really after I started bouncing around, drinking more wine, I, I kind of knew it was my... Uh, uh, the path that I wanted to take. And so um, that led to an internship at Costa Brown Winery in Sebastopol for the fall of 2007, which then I was hired full-time uh, till the end of 2010 when I bounced back at Landmark for a year and a half and then had a great opportunity in 2012 to come to Linmar where I started as the assistant winemaker and uh, really just fell in love with it. Uh, having our own vineyards here at Linmar, I was able to be involved in agriculture, uh, kind of like my family roots. And, yeah, uh, I mean, you have a lot going on there at Linmar. Yeah, I had a great opportunity to keep doing more and more and uh, be ex exposed to more winemaking and fortunately became then the head winemaker in 2017 and have just been been here ever since. It's just a wonderful spot. Now, you you never went to Davis? I did not go to Davis. I uh, have a horticulture from Virginia Tech and uh, as one of my earliest mentors, Michael Brown from Costa Brown, said, you know, we kind of learned through the school of hard knocks. And so uh -huh. um, just very experience-based uh, education in winemaking. Now, do you know Gary Eberly? Uh No, I do not know Gary. He's also from Pittsburgh. Because he, he's, he's local to Pittsburgh. 
uh, changed okay. direction altogether in his career and decided he wanted to be a winemaker. So he went to Davis, and then, to cut a long story short, he opened his own vineyard. He, he, he tells the world that he was the one who introduced Syrah grapes to California, and the clone was called the Suitcase Clone. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's you great. you probably know a lot about. But let, yeah. Let's, uh, we, we, got, we, got, we got a little bit of snapshot of your background. Now, tell us the, the, the history of Linmar. Is, is even more intriguing and, and fascinating than the uh, life story of Pete Segus. So, Sergal. Sergal, <laughs> You weren't with me yeah. when we went to Sergal Farm with the kids a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so Linmar was started in 1980 by Lynn Fritz, and uh, he uh, kind of was uh, born and raised in San Francisco and uh at that time in the 80s, wanted to kind of escape the city for a vacation property, and so came up to Sonoma County and initially bought, uh, initially started buying the prop- uh, a piece of the property, uh, which since then he's bought adjoining acreage to the initial purchase, which totals right now about 100 acres, uh, and it is about 45 acres under vine. So within those 100 acres is the uh, estate winery, uh, Lynn's main residence. Uh, we have our tasting room and hospitality center, uh, the 45 acres of vineyards, as long as, as well as uh, gardens and uh, things like that to complement the uh, the farm here. Now, his sure. wife was a professional in a corporate sense too, right? Yeah, his wife Anisha. Uh, she's actually a Virginia Tech graduate as well, and uh, they um, in the late 2000s. Uh, decided to move up uh, to the winery. They were living in San Francisco and move up to the estate here and run it full-time. So uh, Lynn is the GM and Anisha uh, it runs the hospitality center and uh, kind of all the uh, direct-to-consumer sales that we do here. So I'm, I'm misunderstanding. That they, that they didn't have a Pittsburgh connection. No, no, no uh, the Pittsburgh Jesus connection is just me. Well, no, that, well, the, no I was just confused, that's all. I, I mean, I'm but, easily confused. Yeah, but, you know, actually, Pete is essential to the fact that we're doing this interview because I read somewhere where, um, and they quoted you on how you, you had white wines that were um, uh, light and lively and so forth and so on. And that led me to inquire uh, from the vineyard about the, because oh, I didn't know the vineyard. So you are the key to all this, Pete. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. Now, now let's let's make sure that people un- have the right definition for Sonoma Coast, because we kn- we know Sonoma Valley, and we know it runs north south parallel to Napa Valley, but but where does the coast bit come in? Yeah, so um, Linmar is uh, located within West Sonoma County, uh, which is then also in the Russian River Valley, as well as the Sonoma Coast AVAs. And what makes it really special is that uh, we are known for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And given our location of uh, close proximity to the coast, and that's what Linmar actually means. Lynn uh, exactly. for Lynn Fritz, and Mar of by the sea. And we are about uh, about 13 miles for, uh, the way the crow flies from the ocean. And what that means for us here is that we have a great growing climate for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Where during the day we have nice warm sunlight, the vines are able to photosynthesize and ripen, and uh, really kind of put all their energy into the growing of their uh, of the grapes, and then at night we get a lot of coastal fog influence, and so that I feel is really crucial in creating great wines with balance because the fog comes in, it cools down the vines, the vines are able to kind of take a breath from their hard work that day, kind of recover with the cooler air temperature, it stops their uh, respiration. Um, and so it helps maintain great acidity as well. And so the vines are able to kind of have these great warm days, these cool nights, which then uh, I feel uh, leads to having wines that have great uh, freshness and fruit forwardness, but are not overblown and still have wonderful acidity to create a wine with balance. 
So there's yeah. a lot there's a there's a lot of similarity with Paso Robles area, right? Uh, Paso tends to be warmer than Sonoma. Uh-huh. But, um, it does here our, the, but it does have the cool nights. Yes, yes, and so that's uh, one of the benefits along the California coast is that you do get that coastal ocean influence, which is really helping uh, helping uh, what I feel is, is maintain acidity and, and, and really keep the wine still lively and fresh, uh, but still getting good growing and ripening conditions during the day. You didn't get the forest, did you? Uh, well, they, they've been, uh, the fires have been around the last few years, um, uh, fortunately, for most of the last few years, the fires were all after we had uh, had harvested the grapes. And so uh, here in Northern California, it is definitely a new, newer thing to uh, have to be paying attention to. Normally, you're just worried about Mother Nature and rains, but uh, now mm-hmm. with the reoccurrence of the fires year after year, that is another thing that we do have to take into consideration in our processes. Yeah, it's complicated. I've been reading about it and all the tests that they have to go through, and sometimes the grapes seem fine, but the wine turns out wrong because of the smoke. Yeah, that's that's correct. There's a lot of, uh, you know, this past year, um, there's a lot of, uh, so many people were affected, being that the fires were earlier, that uh, there was a lot of research and studies now being poured into it that hopefully as a collective community in the industry, uh, we are going to be able to better educate ourselves for having to hope, hopefully not deal with this in the future. But uh, given the way things are going, it, uh, you know, uh, it seems to me that it is something that we will have to deal with uh, moving forward. It, do- it doesn't seem to like to go away, does it? No, no, as I think as much as everybody wishes it would. Right. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, the wines that we were sampling, we've been sampling. Yeah, so um, uh, we sent you four wines, uh, right. two Pinot Noirs and two Chardonnays, and so um, they're from our uh, two of our state vineyards. So currently... Um, at Linmar, we have three estate vineyards under production with a fourth one that was just planted. And what I like about this is that uh, we, we span a great uh, distance within the Russian River Valley, starting with our warmest one out of our Adams Vineyard. And then as we work our way south, uh, they uh, the vineyards get cooler, so it goes from Adams to Quail Hill to Susanna's to our newest vineyard, Hessel Station. And uh, what's great about being here is that we have our own vineyard manager and farming team, and so we control all of our inputs to the land uh, as well as the winemaking process. And uh, we're, we're very conscientious about sustainability here. Uh, the vineyard and the winery are all certified uh, sustainable. Uh, we uh, have a big solar farm we just put in, and uh, so taking care of the land uh, that we're on is very important to us in our farming and our just general impacts as well. Uh, so the the two wines, uh, the one being the Quail Hill, that's, that's the 2018 Quail Hill Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And so starting with the Chardonnay, this is a blend of three clones of Chardonnay that we have here grown on the property. They are Ruid, Wente, and Calera. And what I really like about this wine is that the Ruid tends to be a somewhat atypical Chardonnay clone. It's a Musquet selection, so it gives off very unique and exotic aromatics to the final blend. And so where uh, this is a blend of, as I mentioned, the Ruid and Wente and Clara, the Wente to me gives more texture and volume to the wine uh, and more kind of the classic citrus Chardonnay profile, where the Ruid yes, tends I to like have... It. I like and, it, and it's unusual for me because I'm one of those no ABC persons. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it's... Well, I, I uh, like the, it. The Ruid's an clones, exotic clone, so you get more tropical aromatics from that. Um, now, they're just every, the French, Chardonnay's right? barrel fermented in all French oak as well. So, so there's, there's a lot of French about it, right? Yeah, that's uh, just trying to use barrels that are not super impactful but play a supporting role is a goal of mine in all the wines that I make. I really want the fruit in the vineyards, the terroir, to really stand out. Uh, throughout the uh, throughout the wines, and so I like you having barrels that have have more of a supporting role than are the lead than than take the lead, and so um, 
This Chardonnay is 39% new French oak. It was all barrel fermented and aged for about 15 months in barrel. The Go ahead. I just oh, wanted to insert that I, I'm very impressed um, with your story, story of relating abilities as well. <laughs> You're very oh, verbal. You. Very verbal. Thank you. <laughs> Pete, Pete there's, more, there's, more, there's more than a little landmark in the Chardonnay. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it's a fun one to make because that Ruid clone is such an exotic, unique uh -huh. uh, selection. And so it uh, and the vines were planted in the mid '70s, and so for the area and the vine age, it's it's very unique all around. Uh, having vines of that age that are still in production, I think it really makes it uh, what the wine is. It really has that kind of classic stamp of Quail Hill. Now let's let's, so, let's, deal, let's deal with the with, with the quail. I I just love the the, the little golden quail that's on the capsule. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's kind of our <laughs> that's our mascot. <laughs> yeah, so sure. occasionally you'll see them running through the property. So they definitely are here on site. So they are. Huh? Uh, they are. Uh huh. Well, I guess we, I guess we have squirrels in Squirrel Hill too. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Very fitting. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the next wine is a 2018 Quail Hill Pinot Noir, and uh, this wine is a blend of 14 different clones and selections of Pinot Noir on the site. And uh, earlier you joked about suitcase clones. Uh, you know, that's uh, some of the things that we have here are these selections, uh, such as Swan and Calera, uh, which, uh, you know, back the stories go that they are and have been suitcase clones at one time that have now been kind of brought and cleaned up and uh, propagated to be more on a commercial agriculture uh, standpoint, but in the past had had initially been a, been a suitcase clone at uh, one time. And so what I really like about this wine is having so many clones and selections in the final blend that each clone and selection, for example, uh, one called Swan and one called Calera, Swan to me gives way more red fruit and um, aromatics, and the uh, Calera tends to be darker, more blackberry, blueberry, and so I have all these wonderful components that I, I try to make all of them play nice together in the sandbox at the end of the day, <laughs> and so it's really just uh, making putting them all together where, you know, one strength is maybe bright high tone aromatics, another one has better texture and volume. I'm then tasting through all these individual components because here at Quail Hill, it's, it's 45 acres under vine. Um, we have about 18 blocks, but we break up all the blocks into sub blocks. So I have about 50 different picks that I do a year just on the same property. And I, I like to micro ferment everything because that gives me the ability to, um, to kind of break everything out and have it as my blending components. And so, you know, knowing how, uh, uh, you know, relating it back to food and it's kind of having a great spice kit to, uh, to, to make my final blend with. And so within that, I'm then aging in French oak barrels and I'm really allocating specific new French oak barrels to the wines that I'm trying to make. And so, for example, going back to the Swan clone, I like to use barrels that are a little lighter toast for that because too heavy of a barrel can really overwhelm the nuances within the Swan clone, whereas the Calera tends to hold up to a more impactful barrel. So I'm using barrels with a little more texture and volume uh, because I think that melds well with the, uh, with the final wine. How would you like to have your own cooperage? Oh, man, I, <laughs> it's, it's, I've been to France and have been to a, coop, uh, a cooperage where uh, seeing just the, the attention to detail that they take in making, oh, I love it. Yeah. Uh, making well, the, the one, barrels is just fabulous. The one we went, the one we went to is, is in the Barossa Valley in Australia. Oh, yeah. Okay. The, the, the maker is called Yolumba, and Yolumba's been making wine and making their own barrels to put it in since the 1800s. Oh, Wow. Yeah, the the history and just uh, uh, the the tradition behind the, the coopering process is is really great to see. Even with uh, even with all the technological advances that we have today, there's still a guy putting the barrel over an open flame, and and really, what I rely on is the consistency of the cooperage to provide barrels to, uh, for me each year that uh, are consistent, so I know I'm getting the same thing year after year for the wines. 
That's great. Here's a a question for you. Why is it that the world of wine drinkers is totally nuts for Burgundy and equally totally nuts for Pinot Noir? What, what, What is it about this grape that's so seductive that everybody loves it more than any other? Oh man! Well, I can I can at least speak to me because of uh, I I really my whole history has only been in making Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and I really love the versatility of the grape and the so many different styles that you can create with the same grape um, from just different ripeness levels. It just exhibits different flavor profiles within you know where it's grown, the different ripeness, and then it's just very universal for food pairings as well. In my opinion, is that you can eat it uh, have a wine and then have many different meals associated with it that it's you're not kind of okay if I'm going to have a you know if I'm going to drink a pinot I have to have steak with it well you could have it with steak but you could have it with chicken you could have it with a you know a more textured fish and so I just think that the uh, utility of it and and just the, the the differences that that the wine can have is what really makes it special for me now you've got you've got the makings of sparkling wine yeah, yeah, that's a, then the, on top of it, con- it can be a sparkling as well, for sure. So have you contemplated that? Uh, we've we've contemplated it, but uh, you know, right at the moment, we're we're just kind of sticking uh, sticking to uh, creating the still wines that we are. It, we've had lovely experiences with sparkling wines and visiting the wineries. I mean, they're very special people, I think. But, uh, and, and mm-hmm. Now, do you, you you talk about food? Do you have a restaurant on your property? Yeah, so it's um, we do so. have our own. Yeah, we have our own in-house chef, uh, chef team uh, with with two in-house chefs that uh, we do lunch pairings. And so we will create uh, lunches paired to the wines, and the lunches are uh, mainly made with. Uh, produce that we're able to grow here on the estate and so we have a full-time garden team uh, that helps grow the produce for the chef David Frakes um, who used to be um, used to work at Gary Danko I was actually uh, on your website and saw the photo with you in the kitchen with Gary I I haven't talked to him in a long time I hope he's well yeah so with uh, so yes we do we do have a great food and wine program here for uh, members of our wine club and uh, and people who are able to come make reservations. And, uh, you know, you and Peter definitely have to come out at some point to uh, to experience this firsthand. Oh, that would be great to. to have you. Yeah, yeah, you we we have a wonderful time at Iron Horse with um, Audrey and, right. and Barry, who since died, but, uh, and Joy Sterling. Yeah, yeah, Iron Horse. So you're asking about the sparkling. They do such a wonderful yeah, job that they do. Uh, um, they're they're one of the, like just the leaders in the area for that. Now, um, your website, um, all this information because there's so many activities people can sign up for. Uh, is it all on your website? Yeah, the website is a great, uh, great place to go to check out Linmar, kind of see uh, the different facets from the hospitality center to the gardens to the wineries to the vineyard. And uh, that website's uh, just www.linmarestate.com, L-Y-N-M-A-R, estate.com. Uh, and that's a, a great way of, of, if you're not familiar with Linmar, to uh, to kind of see who we are, what we're doing, where we're located. Uh, Lynn and Anisha Fritz have done such a fabulous job in, in creating oh, this space like that we're in. it sounds like the most exciting place in the world, but you're very busy. Yeah, we uh, we are. We're we're very busy. You know, right now the vineyard is going through bud breaks, so the 2021 growing season is upon us. And so, what uh, what I like about being here is I get to channel my my green thumb that I uh, and once started back Genetic, in Pittsburgh yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and and continue to to work here in the vineyard and and check things out and. Uh, uh, really be be a part of uh, the farming uh, process. I love being able to take a product from basically dirt to glass 
uh, having the vines emerge, seeing where they're grown, having that translate into the final wine. And so my goal is out of the 20-some different wines that we make of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, that each one has their own unique personality. And I, I do that by respecting where it was grown and really kind of respecting how the grapes uh, want to be made into wine. And uh, that kind of sounds funny because, you know, I've tried to make wine off of a few specific blocks here that I maybe, you know, tried to extract a little bit more or or warm it up, have a little too much temperature and fermentation, only for the resulting wine to kind of be a little chunky and disjointed. So I've I've realized <laughs> that each wine wants to be its own its own thing. So yeah. so really kind of uh, taking that into consideration and having the wines really express where they're grown is a really uh my end goal for everything this that I'm trying to do here. This is a new this is a new description for a wine, chunky. Chunky, I chunky, like it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And yes. did we cover all four wines? No, no. So the last two wines are from our uh, Susanna's Vineyard right down the road. So this vineyard tends to be about, on any given day, five degrees cooler than here at Quail Hill. Uh, it's a different soil series as well. We're here at Quail Hill. We're in the Sebastopol series. Um, okay. And this uh, at Susanna's is Gold Ridge Sandy Loam, which is a very well-drained um, uh, soil that is really kind of the the standard for growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the area. So the resulting wines are very plush, have great acidity, and, um, you know, are very, very textural. And so we uh, we have this uh, 2017 Chardonnay, uh, which I, given that plushness and, and texture, I like adding a few oak barrels that, that really kind of showcase and uh, allow its, its softness and richness to show through. And so this uh, has uh, a blend of all Wente clone, which is a, kind of the grandfather clone of California yeah. Chardonnay, if you will. And yeah. it, it's a fabulous representation because it maintains its acidity. It showcases this nice, rich softness and still has that kind of very classic uh, lemon-lime citrus notes that, uh, that I look for in a, in a well-made Chardonnay. Uh, uh, the second wine is the... Go ahead, Go ahead. Peter. No, it's not important. I, I interrupted your train of thought. Go ahead. I can follow. Second wine. I can follow easily. So the second wine is the Susanna's Pinot Noir, and so this is a blend of Swan, Calera, and then kind of a, one of the we talked suitcase clones, one called Quail Hill Select that we have. And uh, I really like this wine because it's a wonderful representation of the Russian River Valley and the Sonoma Coast. It has kind of some of the bright red fruits of the Russian River, but then also more of like the some savoriness, uh, some sour cherry cranberry notes on it as well, uh, which then I get a lot more from the Sonoma Coast AVA. And so um, this is a barrel. I'm using barrels that really kind of uplift and showcase these fine uh, fruit components of the final wine, but also making sure it still has good texture and volume uh, in, in the wine. And it's a 43% new French oak um, that was aged for 11 months. And all of our wines are in French oak. That, uh, and I, f I do that because I feel it's really giving me the flavor profile that I'm looking for uh, for the final wines. Now, what, what, I was, what I was going to say earlier on is, and and is a confirmed ABCer. Yeah, I told him that before. And I, and I, <laughs> and I, and I, and I convinced, I used your wine to convince her that she was wrong. Yeah, I mean, All right. I, I loved your, yeah, sure, I think, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I love hearing that. I love hearing that. So thank you very much. Well, it, kind of, it came round circle because that's what picked, I picked up on when, when you were, I don't even know where you were quoted, what publication. Most was. recently in the Wine Enthusiast magazine was with a, a Chardonnay it. article. So that might have been where, where you saw it. That's probably it. So, so it. Where to next? I mean, it's, you keep building and building and building out there. Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, all your activities. and 
Yeah, you know, every year we're just trying to get better. Lynn and Anisha are very supportive of me doing different experiments in the winemaking. Um, you know, one thing I'm, I'm working with now more frequently is more uh, fermentation in sh of concrete, of Chardonnay. And oh, I so was going to ask you, for some reason, I don't know why I was going to ask you about that, because, I mean, of course, uh, well, we don't travel, we haven't traveled for a while, but <laughs> it's all year. But usually, I mean, we get to see all these unusual wine setups um you know like even from that what's the name of that place uh, the mm -hmm. one with the big uh, uh, amorpha amorpha you mean, you mean Gra gravner gravner yeah that's an operation i was never prepared for do you know about gravner no i do not he uses amphora uh and, uh -huh. and he puts them in the dirt he dug up his whole um wine room and and uh, he puts pours the grapes into these uh, clay pots that he has made uh -huh. in Georgia. I mean, Georgia, Russia. It's the tradition of how they make wine in the Republic of Georgia. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, I, I've seen photos and stuff of them fermenting and aging in amphora buried in the ground. Yeah, well, he does it. And he, he's very eccentric, I have to tell you. But his oh, wines, nice. they're quirky, but they're wonderful. Concrete, concrete in the ground. Yeah, so ours are concrete eggs, and um, I really like them because I feel they have uh, the nice brightness and freshness that you can get from a stainless steel tank, and also uh -huh. adding texture and volume for uh, like a, like an oak barrel. But it's uh, obviously not imparting any oat, and it really has a great texture to to the wine, and, and creates a, uh, a tension in the wine that I that I really really like. And so that's something I've been. A, Working with a little bit more and incorporating that into our, our, our program is the use of more concrete. You, you mentioned a wine club. Is that something you wanted to tell people they could join? Yeah, so uh, we have our wine club, and our members are all called our advocates. And this allows you to, um, you know, we're really 90% uh, direct to consumer. And so uh, we have just a few... Um, uh, our, a few of our wines out in restaurants across the country. And so to really get the most diverse uh, sampling of all of our wines, uh, you become a member of our, our, our Advocates Club. And that allows you to have access to a lot of our smaller um, our picks and bottlings. I'm only exactly making sometimes like. two to 300 cases of a few different of these wines because they're coming from certain parcels within our vineyard here. Uh, and also different clonal selections. And so um, we have a pretty diverse portfolio, but to access that, it's all all really goes all out to our wine club. And so that is something you can sign up for. And on the website, you can see the benefits of being in the wine club and the different kind of uh, tiers and allocations throughout as well. So we were in a wine club, but you know Pennsylvania, and this is before they changed the laws. Uh -huh. <laughs> we got, we got, we got thrown out. <laughs> Oh, no. What was that? What, what? That was an so, Oregon that, one. That, what was that it? Was, that was Elk Cove. Elk Cove. Okay. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> talk about Pinot, right? UPS returned to sender, and we, ne we never saw those wines again. But no, no. Yeah, Pennsylvania can be tough. Yeah, but it's much better now. They've changed some of uh -huh. the... Uh, the, the rules and regulations. Well, what, what, what do we what do we say, Pete? We say we're so glad we found you, and uh, we'll we'll find a way to get there somehow, somewhere, over the <laughs> rainbow. <laughs> I love it. I oh, so. It would be great to have you both out here. Oh yeah. So, keep, but you said you were just work. in Pittsburgh visiting your friend from Acorn, right? Yeah, so my whole family's still back in Pittsburgh, and so I was right down the street. And so Acorn Restaurant in Shadyside on Walnut yeah. is actually one of the uh, places that we do have some Linmar wines at. Oh, really? Um, okay. Per, yeah, so we uh, I was able to work. We have our distributor there in Pennsylvania, and he's able to – we have some of the wines there at Acorn. Oh, well, that's great. So I yeah. went there for a fabulous brunch uh, back a couple weeks ago when I came back to see my family. I said, how open are they? We have, they're just now opening up to 75%, actually. Yep. So they are doing the indoor dining, and uh, it, was, yeah. uh, it, was, it was a wonderful meal. Yeah, well, and he's very talented. I've had his food, and he's uh -huh. very good. He's your friend. Was he a high school friend? 
Uh, well, yes, actually, Brian Singer uh, is my friend who who owns the restaurant, and he, uh, him, and I actually met in preschool, and then went to Virginia Tech together. So we oh, uh, we kind of joined back up a little bit later in life, and so have been been very close friends ever since. Great. Well, I love meeting you and talking to you. And love your wines, and we have to stay in touch. Okay. Yes, for sure. And yeah, and, and uh, if you come by again. Be sure to bring us up. I will for sure. Next time, uh, next time I come back, I'd love to uh, love to, to say hello. And uh, it was great getting to speak to uh, to you and Peter today. Well, I, you, you're just uh, you're so well spoken. It was a pleasure, believe me, to interview you. So well, thank you. We will we will email you when it's going to air, and you could listen to it right off of uh, our website. Or Spotify. I found some on Spotify. <laughs> Or Spotify. Yeah. You can listen to it on Spotify, too. All right, Great. Pete Sorgel. Um, our best to your family, too. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Anne. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Pete. All right. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Back. Next up, we're going to be talking to Brian Tracy about Sagamore Spirits. And, uh, and this who, is who, a distillery that does some really wild and wonderful things. And again, we didn't know about them no, until. Well, who, who knew that uh, the state of Maryland was, 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 one, was one of the very early? I don't know. I mean, he, he, Brian says it was the first. No, we, I don't know. We, we've talked to people who make a convincing case for the fact that liquor was first produced in Pennsylvania. Yeah, let's not let's not fight over it yeah. because this is this is good stuff. This is a spirit that is distinctly American, but but not well loved across the country. And that yeah, is and that is rye rather than bourbon. You followed there's this pattern, by the way, and all these whiskey bottles are absolutely getting more beautiful. By the way, this is this is Uh, this is is a a problem for me because I can't then start parting with them, and yet, how much more stuff can we store in this house? Well, we 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 have to have a little sip every once in a while. (laughs) The the interesting thing, we'll, we'll we'll have you listen listen up to this particular. Trivia piece of trivia, because one of the rye whiskies that they make at Sagamore is finished in tequila casks. Yeah, they do a lot of that sort of thing. How about that? So, so wait on till you hear about that. But in the meantime, here's Brian. Welcome. Go ahead, love. Uh, Brian Tracy is the CEO of Sagamore Spirits, um, and. you you have a whole range of, of spirits, Brian. I mean, do you really have a um, what do you call those um, those um, houses, the cold spring houses? Oh, the the spring houses uh, where we get yeah. our spring water from. Yes, we we sure do. Yeah, that's on our farm, Sagamore Farm. Okay, well, I remember. Uh, on my great uncle's farm, I was always sent to the spring house to get butter and milk and whatnot, and um, it was loaded with creepy crawlies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, any good farm has that, right? Um, and it does. That spring house has so much history. You know, for us, it was it's located on our farm, Sagamore Farm, which is. Um, and the spring house, you know, the farm was founded in 1925, but the spring house actually predates back to 1909 when it was built by a guy named Charles A. Councilman who got a grant from University of Maryland to study limestone aquifers and their effect on oh, agriculture okay. and livestock. But eventually people did use it as a form of refrigeration and um, also the high-quality limestone spring water that, that the spring imparts comes to find out it's really ideal for proofing uh, your your American whiskeys. Huh. Now, no, tell no, us you about did, your you, company. 
Yeah, you didn't necessarily start out in the liquor business. No, no, it's a good, good call out there, Peter. As I, I, I have a history before, just as as far as maybe just an entrepreneur, but I used to own a, a backpacking and kayaking tour company in the Grand Canyon um, in the Southwest <laughs> in Yosemite. So a lot of people always think that I have this history of of whiskey making, and and I don't. I have more of a history of of starting businesses and then and then hiring much better people around me to to do the real work, you know. <laughs> But what give us you gave us a little bit of history fill fill in a few more of the blanks between between when there was a spring house and, and when there was a liquor supply yeah absolutely so you know what's interesting is as i mentioned the the farm was founded in 1925 um originally by the vanderbilt family and really became uh known for thoroughbred horse racing but like oh, any wow, okay, farm okay yeah, read, and so and that read something about horses in the in the backup information that you sent. Yeah, we the 1909 yeah. is on your bottle. By the way, which is it very is. handsome, very handsome bottle. Yeah, thank you. So that kind of pays homage to our spring house on the farm where we get the spring water for um when we come out of the barrel to proof our whiskeys down to bottle um proof, but um you know, the the farm is almost 100 years old, which is exciting and it's made a lot of evolution uh, in the meantime and and it's kind of more moved more towards agriculture and and supporting our whiskey business so uh you know what give a little background on kind of how we got here is is you know come to find out a lot of folks may or may not know is maryland has a really rich history of distilling and namely really rye whiskey that yeah, I never goes knew back that almost until you yeah i mean you're telling you introduction you introduced me to that bit of knowledge. Well, yeah, only a good Marylander would, you know. Like a lot of people don't like don't realize that this history is here, which is so exciting, and that's kind of what inspired us to start Sagamore Spirit is that the fact that we have a history of distilling that goes back, you know, fifteen, sixteen hundred to almost uh, almost one hundred and sixty years before Kentucky was a state, and that. A lot of the, basically the original American whiskey is rye whiskey, and it was really born here in the Mid-Atlantic region of of, of Maryland and Pennsylvania and Virginia. Pennsylvania, um, I knew about that. Yeah. Yeah, and so they have their um, unique style called Monongahela, which is a wonderful rye, and then then there is Maryland style, which was known to be a little bit more a sweeter, approachable uh, rye whiskey. You know, rye tends to have a a beautiful bold spice at times that it can impart into the whiskey and and what we do is we kind of put a spin on that by using a little bit of corn and malt in our mash bills that give us this multi-dimensional beautiful balance to it so you still get that rye spice but you also get this interesting sweet fruity floralness in our rye whiskey which is a bit unusual and really what we refer to as maryland style okay so so, so there's a history in in the state there's also some interesting ingredients in the state you, you mentioned uh, limestone water we, yep, we know, absolutely we, we know the people who own mictors you probably know them oh yeah they're they, great absolutely yeah, they are great man and they, and they 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 actually bought the mashbill book that said this, this is this is how you make this stuff and totally revived it. Uh, yeah, they, they, they've done a wonderful job. Now, now, now they moved. Now they moved. They moved to Whiskey Land, I guess you would call it. <laughs> yes, uh, it, it, I would say that's a good way to to coin Kentucky. They certainly have their fair share of distilleries, and you know, it's always interesting. Is a lot of folks don't know, but you know, even go back to. You know, let's say 1910, uh, Maryland had 44 distilleries at the time, all making rye whiskey, and we kept making it through prohibition. Uh, it's one of the reasons we're called the free state, and we actually used to export, of course, for quote unquote medicinal purposes to Ireland and Scotland and, and the UK. And, um, <laughs> and then eventually we switched over to ethanol production, uh, mostly to support World War II. A lot of the distilleries in our country did that. And then oh, our no last kidding. distillery, okay. yeah, yeah, you know, half of the 550 million gallons of ethanol production that was required for the war came from our distilleries in the U.S. And and then um, 
you know, after that, a lot of the distilleries just never made much of a comeback. And our last distillery closed its doors in the early 1980s, I believe around 1982, and, and sold that name off to Heaven Hill, and that's Pikesville Rye. And so we thought it was a real compliment that, you know, even distilleries outside of Maryland wanted some of that history and those historic brands, you know, that started here because they had so much respect in the fact that Maryland was really kind of considered a, a nice superior rye whiskey. And, and, you know, even for decades without anybody in the state actually distilling rye whiskey, that brand and that identity of Maryland style rye um, continued to live on. And that's really what inspired us at Sagmore to get started. And so when you look at our portfolio line, you look at it, it's, it's pretty straightforward. We only do rye whiskey, and so we're pretty focused on that. Right. Well, but you play around with different finishes because um, at, at some point we're going to get to taste your tequila-finished rye, which I can't even imagine. But I know you, you made it, but it's not yet available because of the COVID uh, complications, right? Yeah, it's just rolling out now, um, which is exciting for us. So it's been a project long in the works, and we're excited that here in the States it's it's finally rolling out uh, as we speak right now. So, But, um, yeah, COVID obviously has had a, its a implications on everyone's business in some capacity. And so, But we're excited to have our, our spring 2020 Sagamore Reserve release, which is a, a rye whiskey finished in tequila barrels. Oh, so it's in, so it's in tequila barrels. It's it's not it's not cactus. No, it's um, what we do is we we take our original um, rye that we distill, and after aging it for about four and a half years in the original American oak barrels, um, we sourced some extra anejo uh, tequila barrels, um, which are obviously you know really high end tequila barrels. And we put this four-and-a-half-year-aged rye whiskey inside those barrels for another eight months and, and finished in there just enough to pick up some of those really complementary flavors that, uh, that balance really well with the, with the rye whiskey and complement the tequila and complement the rye whiskey. And it's a pairing that I think catch a lot of people off guard because they think maybe it's going to be really hot or it sounds yeah, like they know. don't know what I to mean, think. I still don't know, but I will know. <laughs> yeah. Um, you will what, know, and it's, it's shocking how well it worked. Now, do, did you, um, are you experimenting with other kinds of uh, modifications to straight rye or just a couple? I mean, just that one. No, we've done several. So, um, you know, we have our core rye whiskey products, which is our 83 proof, signature rye we have a, a double oak which is um uh, obviously aged in original american oak and then finished in a toasted wave state barrel and our cash strength and those are our three core products that are available pretty much all the time and then we have our sagamore reserve series which is a release that happens about twice a year um one in the spring one in the fall and we have some you know where we've played around with um, port finished barrels that ended up winning uh, World's Best Rye Whiskey in 2019 in the San Francisco Spirit Competition. To, oh, that's a big one. Um, Good work. Boy, that's a big, that's a big yeah, award. Th- yes, thank you. We're, we're beyond excited about that, as you can imagine. Uh, and, you know, all the way to we, we've even had some fun where we worked with um, local breweries where they took our rye barrels, uh, aged their beer in it, and maybe an imperial type stout and return those back to us. And then we put our whiskey in it to finish after <laughs> aging for about four years to finish in there for about another 20, 24 months and, and get a really beautiful kind of like chocolatey multi-flavored type uh, finished rye. We've, we've played with, uh, boy, sherry barrels. We've played with rum barrels. We've, we have a lot of fun with this. Uh, the Calvados barrels was a great one. Oh, we finished one in a cognac. Yeah, the that was a beautiful spiced apple pie. To cook. It would be fun to cook with. Have you done yes, anything with yes. rum? We have played a little rum? bit with rum. There's yeah, we have played a little bit with that. I'm surprised about rum. You know, I, my exposure to rum was pretty limited until we started doing this program. And we've gotten some rums that are really, I mean, you wouldn't put them with Coca-Cola. They're sipping. Rums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think people don't fully understand that category, but there's some beautiful rums out there that you certainly uh, are best just 
to enjoy by themselves. Yes, yes. Well, we've interviewed people. I can't remember all of them yet. I mean, now at the minute, but um, they're made in all kinds of different places too. So it's a it's a surprise. Things new developments in the spirit world are always welcome and and are pretty much a surprise when you think about it, huh? Yeah, I, I was, think you I know. Was, I was laugh, Brian, when when we talk about. Uh, Use, using old barrels, using previous, previously loved bar- barrels, I guess. And the p- people in general, it's considered, who started it, were the Scots. And the Scots are renowned in the United Kingdom for having short arms and long pockets. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for that out there. But, yeah, there, you know, it's funny, you know, this the whiskey business is, has a rich history all over this world as a beautiful global spirit. And, um, and, you know, you can look to some of the folks before you and, and try not to make things any harder on you and look what the folks have done in Scotland with Sherry finish and so forth and cognac finish. And there's some beautiful things we can learn from them. And then we do try and always have about 2% of our, our, um, our whiskey kind of in some type of innovation uh, format, and we're always just trying to learn a little bit more as we advance forward. So, th- so that's so that's where the tequila concept came from. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's, in- it's interesting that you you said you're experimenting with with port and sherry and enhanced, I guess you would call it, uh, whiskies, and and that's something that the Scottish have adopted even more aggressively than anybody else, I guess. Uh, they've done a great job, for sure. And, and you know, like I said, sometimes you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can look to somebody who's done it really well and see if it works well for us. And I think the thing that we've learned and really love about some of those finishes you just named are the rye whiskey itself has this beautiful spice, as I mentioned. So when you work with a finishing barrel like a fortified wine and you can pick up a little bit of that sweet notes, it just really complements each other and creates something usually very unique and, and very well balanced, and but yet has this complexity and depth to it um, that just make it fun. And so we certainly do a lot of that and, and we play around. And the beauty of whiskey is if, if, you, if you put something in a barrel and you don't quite like where it is, you can put it back on the rack in the warehouse and wait another two years and see where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, what, I'm, this is, I should have asked you this right off the bat. What actually makes rye whiskey rye? You know, that's a great question, I, I, and I'm glad you asked that because I think sometimes, and I do it all the time, it's a bit of an assumption that people know that, and, and a lot of people don't. And so um, – you know, a lot of folks are familiar with maybe bourbon as the other American whiskey. And, and to be in that uh, bourbon in your mash bill, you have to be at least 51% corn. Well, just like uh, bourbon, to be a rye, to be a straight rye, we have to be at least 51% rye, ma- rye grain in our mash bill. After that, we can fill it in with malt or, or um, corn, whatever we'd like. But and then, of course, um, when we still, when we go to, um, uh, to, to distill it, uh, we we can't get above, you know, say 160 proof because it, you start to approach that that neutral grain spirit. So we don't we don't get near that. And then when we come off the still, you don't want to be more than about 135 proof. And then when you go into the barrel, it always has to be a new American oak barrel. You can't go in at more than 125 proof. And um, you have to age for at least two years. And then when you come out of that barrel, you have to uh, be in the bottle at 80 proof or 40% ABV or higher. And if you do all those things, you get to say you're a straight rye whiskey. And so, you know, all of our products are four to six years old, um, and they're all straight rye whiskeys. And, you know, you're not allowed to cut corners on that, but we think it's well worth it. Well, how did you learn so much about rye? <laughs> did you just drink a lot of water? <laughs> I tell you, I like I said earlier, I've I've been fortunate enough, and this industry is filled with great people. Um, you know, know, you oh, think sure, a lot of people sure. try to try to like keep everything very confidential, and you're going to steal my secrets, and it's it's not like that at all. People are incredibly inviting and happy to help, and happy to share knowledge and information. So, 
you know, I just went around and, and tried to put myself in as many type of learning environments as I could over the years and, and listen to the people who've been doing it a lot longer than I have and listen to them and learn and, and just and ask questions, you know. And so I've been fortunate enough to, to be around a lot of really smart people. I was, I was around one of them for a long time, uh, Larry Ebersold, who was the master distiller at MGP and LDI and, um, and Seagrams and so forth. And he is a, a bit of a mentor to me, and, a, and I really look up to him, and he's just been a tremendous help. But he's one of many. So uh, just a great industry in general. Did you ever run across Booker No from Jim, from Jim Beam? I never had the pleasure. I, I've met some relatives, but I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, unfortunately. He was a wonderful Talk character. Talk about a character. <laughs> we, were, we, were at I tasting. Have... we were at a tasting with Mr. and Mrs. Booker. And somebody, somebody asked a really, a really dumb question of Booker. So, so like, how, how often do you get to taste this really good stuff that you make? And he said, almost every day. <laughs> not a bad, not a bad life, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. And we, we met his was was. Was Booker his son, Lily, the one we met most recently? Yes, I think so. So, so, there's, a, so there's, there's a Booker in charge, there's a no in charge again that we met at an event called the Pittsburgh Wine and Spirits Festival not too long, not too long ago. Yeah, a great family legacy and history there for sure. Yeah. You know, all, a lot of the uh, artists and producers of everything from food to a chocolate to a, they're, they're characters I mean they're really interesting people and you know coming from all different all different kinds of previous careers so um, anyhow so we're that's the fun of our job is actually talking to everybody well the best part is yeah you guys have a pretty good thing yeah. we have a good thing tasting too yeah. Now tell me this. Um, like, how much of this do you produce, and, and where uh, where are you entrenched for uh, access to, to the drinking public? So, um, you know, as far as our main core products, as I mentioned, we're we're in about forty one states in the U S. and then we're in um, six different countries um, globally. So, uh, China, Japan, Philippines. Uh, UK, Germany, Canada. So, um, so we've got a little bit of a reach, but we, you know, we're a fairly young company and just getting started. So that's, that's where you can find uh, usually at least one of our core products, if not all three. When it comes to the Sagamore Reserve series, it's, it's a limited time offering. Whatever we make, when it's gone, it's gone. When it's done, it's done. And, and usually, and we haven't really repeated, uh, much of anything yet. Um, I could see maybe repeating something down the road, but we haven't done any of that. So it, that in the Sagamore Reserve Series, it doesn't usually get to every state and it hasn't ever gone international. So it's usually anywhere from maybe two to three markets to as many as maybe 21 markets. Right. And, um, you know, it's usually maybe around six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred cases. Um, and then, like I said, when it's, it's gone, it's gone. Well, well, we wish you great success, and um, we're sure you're going to be doing more more interesting things that will tease our palates over the, over <laughs> the years that go by. And it's so 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 good to hear an American success story. So we, we thank you for your contribution to on the menu radio, and we wish you all the very best. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah. And your website, just before we go? Uh, it's sagamorespirit.com, and um, uh, spirit is, is singular. And, uh, of course, Instagram is, is the same, at sagamorespirit. Um, and you can always go to our website and sign up to become what we call a whiskey thief um, to get <laughs> a little bit more immersed in the brand and, and learn more about what we're doing. And, and they usually get... Uh, wind uh, of of some of the special releases before any anybody else. Oh well, that's good to know. Tell me again how you you go on your website and then what? Yeah, you'll go into our website, and I believe in the upper right hand corner of the menu, it'll say uh, maybe a link there. It says "Become a Whiskey Thief," and uh, you know, just kind of 
Yep, fill out the information, and then, you know, we'll – we try not to pester you too much with newsletters, but if we think we have something of, of interest to you, we'll, we'll share it. If not, we leave you alone. Okay. okay. And whiskey is with an E, not the <laughs> <laughs> It is, correct. <laughs> okay. I think. You know, I'm looking outside of the studio window, and, you know, things are blooming turning yeah. green, getting flowers and buds. Oh, boy. It's been a year, hasn't it? It, it sure has. And, and we wish all of you the best of luck in finding a, finding a vaccine. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. one in four American adults have been vaccinated. Yeah, no. yeah, we, we got ours. Yeah, we're done. Some are feeling somewhat more secure. Show. Yeah, well, who, who knows what's going to happen next. Yeah. But, in, but in the meantime... Join us again, same time, same place next week, and until then... Bye-bye.